This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Apostates Anonymous, the show you turn to when you're no longer an evangelical or even a Christian. Join hosts Matthew J. DiStefano and Keith Giles as they tip over just about every sacred cow known to man. You're sure to have a good time if you're a heathen or heretic or apostate or reprobate. If you're an evangelical, maybe you won't have such a good time. But either way, we want you to listen. You can check out Apostates Anonymous wherever you get your podcast fix. Now, on to the show. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. <laughs> Every time, let's kick the tires and let the fires big, Daddy. I don't even know what's that. Is that from Top Gun? I believe it is. Yes, I was sure. going to say okay. Talladega Nights, go but I that. think it's actually Top Gun. I think you're. I think you're right. <laughs> Top Gun. <laughs> I think they were being somewhat yeah. serious when they said "kick the tires and light the fires." But all of that being said, welcome to the podcast where we are uh, planning to kick the tires and also light the fires uh, with our guest Eric Scott English. Uh, but my name is Nat. I should mention, I guess, uh, my brother John is with us as always. Say hi, John. Hi, John. I have to have at least one shtick we can go back to, yeah. right? Um, so I'm going to read you a quick bio, and we're going to jump headfirst into an awesome conversation with Mr. Eric Scott English, who wrote, uh, who writes the Unenlightenment column for Pathos Progressive Christian. Uh, Eric is all, he also hosts a podcast called Unenlightenment, where he interviews leading thinkers in the Christian faith about various topics associated with progressive Christianity and evangelicalism. Eric holds advanced degrees in philosophy and theology. Uh, his lifelong passion for Christ-like discipleship has allowed him to travel and teach those within the church for the last 20 years. Eric lives in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area with his wife, Cynthia, and their three kids. And you have a book also by the same title, correct? Unenlightenment um, that has been published by Choir. Is that available currently? Yes. Yep. Awesome. Amazon, all the major book places. Nice, nice. So, well, I'm sure we have lots to talk about that. I'm intrigued by the title. Anything with the word un in front of it, I like it. Um, so <laughs> I, I consider myself unenlightened every day, a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, man. How are you doing? You're pretty good, pretty good. I just hope I don't get lit on fire and kicked. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as you don't bring up John Piper, then no puppies will be kicked. <laughs> uh, actually, you can feel free to bring him up. We just insert the, the, you know, the poor yelping dog. Because in our world, whenever you, or something. yeah. Now, whenever you mention that guy's name, we just assume a puppy's getting kicked somewhere. So <laughs> it's a, uh, it's just that sort of little inside baseball. But uh, if you don't mind, man, just walk us through um, your your faith journey a little bit. Give us a little bit of your background, and then we'll uh, we'll jump from there. What do you say? Sure, sounds good. I uh, became a Christian when I was sixteen, so I wasn't raised in the church or anything, and attended a little fundamentalist Baptist church out in the country. And uh, they did a pretty good job discipling me and 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 preparing me for life as a Baptist. And so then I just, uh, that was when I was 16. So then I went off to college. Uh, I went to an evangelical school. I was going to study youth ministry. Well, I did study youth ministry and Bible. And uh, uh, met my wife there, who was a King James-only fundamentalist. That led to some great conversations. So... After graduation or around graduation, I got my first job in um, the Reformed Church. And within eight months, I was fired for basically somebody in the church who had money, didn't, didn't like a decision that I had made, and so pressured the pastor to fire me, and that's what happened. So I uh, gave up formal professional ministry right then and there, so that I was not going to be dealing with that anymore. And, uh, you know, basically from there, just began, uh, had a lot of really bad interactions with uh, pastors and leaders in the evangelical community, which made me really question and think about uh, my faith and what it meant to be an evangelical. And so I decided to go to graduate school to study historical theology. And uh, it was part of the journey. And I didn't really, I thought, I thought maybe I would go on to get a PhD and teach or something, but I wasn't entirely sure where that was going to lead. But um, that was really the the start of my deconstruction at that point because I had, you know, menial jobs and different things like that during graduate school where I would write notes and I carry a little journal with me and just reevaluate different things every every now and then and compiled quite a little library of these notes and scrap papers. 
And uh, those are what I ended up using to write on Enlightenment. Wow. Okay. So it sounds like you actually that that story sounds familiar to me. Yeah, at least parts of it. I bet anybody who's gone through this stuff, we, we're going to find you know touch points right along the yeah. way. One of the first things that I deconstructed, one one of the first things that started, I mean, going down that road was some actual study of historical Christianity. Was that like similar for you? Did you start to see stuff and like go? what the hell is this? Like, how come they didn't teach me this? And (laughs) I hadn't even heard of Athanasius before, you know, I read this book. Yeah, no, it definitely started there. And then it just sort of uh, created this passion for philosophy. So so then I wanted to know, like, am I thinking properly? Yeah. So that's why I went from historical theology to philosophy. And I felt that it was a well-rounded education to go that route so I could really think through these ideas and evaluate them. Yeah, you know what? For my money, dude, like... uh, I think that's an underrated field of study within Christianity. Wouldn't you say that philosophy, and, and just for the reason that you mentioned, I like helping you learn how to think well, how to how to sort of logic some things out. And I mean, I, I don't know. It, it just seems funny that a lot of a lot, a lot of the more fundamentalist Christians will sort of poo-poo the idea of philosophy. Right? They'll lump it all in with human, you know, secular humanism. Well, it depends on where you go to learn philosophy. Very true. Very true. So. But that whole concept of, of learning how to think, you know, and then taking that discipline into your theological studies seems to be like a healthier way to go. What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's, and that's one of the, I mean, that's the approach that I, that I used in this book. This book doesn't tell people what to believe. It just, it shares my journey through all the major theological ideas. And it teaches people how I think through them. And so, because I think that we have some commonality in logic and, and rationality. And if we just use that along with some common sense, I think we would have more things that we agreed on than disagreed on. Yeah. But it sometimes helps to even, even when you disagree with people to at least start talking about how we arrived at those conclusions. I mean, at least we can, I, I think you're right about that. Because I've had disagreements with people and said, okay, well, I understand how you got there. I don't agree with your conclusions, but I at least can track the path you took to get there, right? And so, and there's just, you know, in, in, again, in so much of the, the religion that John and I were raised in, and it sounds like you were as well, those, those, those questions weren't tolerated, first of all. And there was a lot of that stuff that was just sort of denigrated as, well, that's just human logic and human reasoning, and you can't bring that to bear on, on, on theological <laughs> stuff. You had to somehow check your brain at the door and just, you know, tote the party line. So, yeah, I was, um, I was I, that's actually what I was going to say. It's like a lot of, it seems like a lot of the churches that we were, that we were raised in, uh, really asked you to leave your critical thinking at the door. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so what, along with that were any, any form of questioning, any form of like, Hey, that doesn't seem right. Can we talk about that? Uh, they, they just wanted us to take their, and this is in air quotes, their knowledge, and we're supposed to move along with it without ever having any kind of critical thinking or any kind of like, hey, can we, can we, can we ask them like logical questions about how you got to where you are? It seems like all of that was just left at the door and we're just supposed to accept their authority as preachers, pastors. Yeah. Cause that's faith, John. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, that's indoctrination. Oh, no. Oh, oh indoctrination. Okay. <laughs> okay, that's what they called faith. Um, I, remember, I, I had It was eye-opening for me because I was, John and I went to college together for what, one semester, two semesters? One or two, yeah. Yeah, anyway, we, and did you take that philosophy one-on-one class with me or was that just me? We took um, it, but I don't think we took it together. With uh, it's, it's, the, it's the class where we were asked to read, which was like, like shocking to me at the time. This is, right. this is how like closeted I was within philosophy. I had to read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Right. And I was like, this, this, this seems really not okay. This yeah. doesn't really <laughs> seem to fit within like the Christian ideal of life. And, uh, well, and it drove me crazy because the, because the entire semester with this professor, you know, um, he keeps reiterating the fact that like there aren't any wrong answers here, guys. Like, 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 like the whole point of this is to teach you how to reason through some stuff, give you some tools, give you some background on some of the great philosophers, but also, you know, not necessarily arrive at a conclusion. And that, man, that bristled my young fundamentalist brain. I like it just about fried it. Cause I'm like, no, 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 no. This is more like, you know, math. There's got to be a right answer here. I plugged in the right numbers in the equation. This should now result in this. And 
I think he probably had a lot of fun with guys like me because he just <laughs> knew he, he knew the right buttons to push and he could tweak me a little bit. And, uh, but yeah, th- those seeds were planted though, you know, and, and, you know, it took me, it took me decades to get back around to that place where like, I'm not, I'm not searching for answers per se. I'm fine with the mystery. I'm fine with the, with, with some degree of not knowing. And, uh, but that, that, you know, that's taken quite a while, you know, certainly not what most evangelical churches want from us, right? They want that indoctrination. They want to make sure that you have, you know, when the, when they read in the Bible that you're supposed to be ready to give an answer, they mean like answers to the questions, not a, I love, I love reading that verse back into the Bible. It says, actually, what, what he says is you should be prepared to give an answer for the hope you have. It's not asking you for answers to all of life's questions. But that's the way it was taught to me was, hey, you need to be ready from about, like say, an apologetics point of view. When somebody comes to quiz you down, brother, then you better have your stuff ready. You better be ready to be prepared to give an answer. But so in this book on enlightenment, you go through some of these, I guess you, you're going through some of these topics that you, that you begin to unravel a bit. Um, where did you, where did you begin? If that, if that's a fair question, what was a good jumping off point for you? Well, the Bible. <laughs> um, right. Amen. So back in 2013, I wrote a post for Pathios that went viral called, uh, the Bible is not the word of God, a polemic against Christendom. And that, and that really pissed people off. I mean, <laughs> that was the first time I'd ever experienced anything like that. Um, and just the, the amount of hate expressed towards me. And I, and I, you know, a lot of it is, it was, it was, you know, me questioning and, and looking at and challenging this notion that look to the Bible as an idol. It's even greater than Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, their doctrine becomes inerrant as well. And they have a hard time distinguishing between absolutes and, and different things like that. And theology becomes, you know, set in stone and, it just becomes a mess. And it's all because of their view of, of the Bible. Right. So, and, and that's the foundation for everything. So from there, everything changes. And we joke, right, that a lot of these people have removed the Holy Spirit from the Holy Trinity and it becomes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. But in a, in a weird way, it's, it's not that funny. Uh, because in a lot no, of it's ways, too damn it's, true to be it's funny. absolutely true. Um, I think we were all probably raised in a church that at some point really pushed the idea that the Bible was inerrant. It was the word of God. Everything in it was true. Do not question any of it. Specifically, do not question anything that seems to contradict itself. Ooh, because yeah, there there's a reason in there why it's that. And it's not for you to learn. It's just for you to understand and accept. And that's some scary shit right there. When you're not even allowed to ask questions, when you, using your critical mind, see places where the Bible contradicts itself, and you're expected to just accept that as gospel truth. And that's that's some scary um, ground that we're on, right? Well, we all have this, and I talk about this, uh, I believe in the first chapter, we uh, when, uh, on doubt. We all have this built-in mechanism within us called doubt. And that mechanism is our critical uh, minds looking at something and questioning it and saying something doesn't feel right or look right or seem right with what I'm reading or interacting with, whatever this idea is. And that doubt is there as a protective mechanism. And we shouldn't suppress that. We need to nurture that and show people how to deal with that and how to interpret the doubt. Yeah. For me, some of it started as a kid, right? You know, because you read through the, you know, you get told Bible stories, and some of them are just fantastical and and strained credulity, right? Um, I can get on board with the whole six days of creation if that's the way you want to go with it, you know. But there were certain things like, I don't know. I mean, am I really supposed to believe that that penguins from from Antarctica somehow made their way over to the Middle East to climb on Noah's Ark? And um, <laughs> there were right and. Yeah. Uh, Am I really supposed to believe that Jonah got swallowed by some giant fish or a whale or whatever the hell it was? Um, and when I voiced those questions as a kid, of course, you don't, you don't even get it, the courtesy of a, of, a, of a response. It's usually just shut up. That's just the story. Believe it. Um, but as an adult, when I questioned those kinds of things, yeah, we were, we were told the same darn thing, you know? And what struck me is I remember Rob Bell talking to him. I think it was in this book, you know, what is the Bible, you know? But he makes the, he makes this observation that, you know, if we're, if we're really going to get stuck on whether or not Jonah literally got swallowed by a fish, 
like I'm already bored with this conversation. Like you're missing everything else that's interesting in this story because you want to get hung up on the the physics of it, right? And and like and you're missing all this other, you know. I had to get to a point where I was either going to discard the whole thing or I was going to learn to read it differently. And thankfully, I think there's other ways. To, obviously, I think there's other ways to read those those stories and 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 derive some value that don't have to be tied to them being literally true. So I don't know. So so when you say the, the Bible. It not being the word of God, that was a pretty new concept um, for me as well. And I think it might have been C.S. Lewis, who I got my first little inkling from. But beyond that, the inerrancy stuff, what else about the Bible kind of tripped you up? Well, so I sort of subscribe to what's called neo-orthodoxy when it comes to understanding what the Bible is. And uh, basically, that's like Karl Barth and Niebuhr and uh, Paul Tillich and people like that. And it's this idea that uh, it's sort of like a spiritual notion that the Bible, I still think, can become the Word of God in the sense that it participates in prayer, that the individual participates in prayer and meditation. And, you know, because I, I think that the Holy Spirit exists and is 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 still active. And I, and I believe that the Bible still has authority in the Christian life. Um, but I don't think the Bible is in and of itself the Word of God. Um, but it can have this spiritual manifestation to it where it becomes that in the right circumstances. Yeah, I mean, isn't that kind of what C.S. Lewis talked about then? And it, there's a semi-famous quote of his, right? It says, this, you know, Jesus alone is the Word of God, not the Bible. And he says essentially that the Bible, when when treated correctly, essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, but and with the use of good teachers and people can lead us and point us to Christ. Um, but we can't use it as an encyclopedia out of which we take stuff to use as weapons. But then in, in the middle of that, he also refers to it as, as, as myth, which, which has gotten me in all kinds of trouble. I think there's a mythical element to scripture that if we're, that if we're willing to look at it that way, we'll go, okay. And, and Lewis makes the distinction that, because again, we're not talking about just any old myths. We're talking about myths selected by God to carry and convey certain truths. So there's there, there's that element to it. I, I'm I'm with you in in a sense. I do kind of sort of fall in that neo orthodoxy kind of plane when it comes to this. But I also kind of lean in on on the on the Jewish rabbis and and in the ways that they they wrestle with the text, you know. And so that their their whole approach to to, uh, to Torah is to argue with it and and wrestle with it and and you know sometimes you know beat their heads against it and sometimes just reject it outright, you know. And I'm I, I think we have. Uh, some 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 latitude to do that with scripture, but John, I cut you off, and you're about ready to say something, man. I'm sorry. I'll kind of spin off of what you you know you bringing up C.S. Lewis, which is an interesting thing because you you do talk about apologetics in your book, and I've I've said this before. I think there's a there's a there's a phase that a lot of us go through where apologetics answers a lot of questions that we have, but a lot of people like myself find that they can't get stuck there. Apologetics, after a while, don't really answer the questions that I have. Uh, they want to defend the Bible. They want to defend Christianity in a way that that I no longer can hold on to. I found it interesting that you also talk about kind of the apologetic view of the of, of faith, of the Bible, of Christianity itself as I don't want to say not correct, but for me it was a it was a launching pad to go on to other other writers, other historians who talk about the Bible. Do you find that true that you see a lot of people who kind of use that as like a, a stopping point and then they kind of move from there? Well, not everybody. I think a lot of people do stay there and they live in that apologetics world. But those of us who, we use this phrase a lot too, a lot of us who uh, find ourselves in this idea of you know looking for intellectual honesty, that can't be where we camp out, right? The the problem I have with apologetics is that, and in in the book I somewhat abruptly just say it's all kind of worthless. And the reason for that, is, and I think that there's a teaching component there, but be, what bothers me the most, and I spent a lot of time studying apologetics. What bothers me the most is it's and it's sort of like the art of deception or trickery. So the goal is to create arguments that sound so convincing that even an atheist would be convinced by them. And they try to use atheistic uh, reasoning and logic and stuff like that to try to create these pseudo-arguments 
that they think prove God's existence or, you know, whatever, you know, solve the problem of evil and different things like that. I just, and I think that for some, hearing an argument like that might be encouraging to their faith, but I don't think that it should be something that we are uh, pursuing when we're dealing and experiencing serious doubt. There's a uh, author named Elisa Childers who wrote a book called Another Gospel. She's my nemesis. And (laughs) (laughs) she was recently asked the question, well, what should people in the church who doubt, what should they do? And here was her intellectual, because she claims to be an apologist. This was her answer. Study apologetics. Mm. That will answer all your questions. Oh, okay. That was, that was her answer. She, she rails on progressive Christians for doing deconstruction and reconstruction and things like that. But her solution to doubt is studying apologetics. Wasn't she part of that book, um, Before You Lose Your Mind? Was that Lisa uh, Childers or Alyssa Childers? Are oh, they, I'm, I'm not sure. sure. Yeah. Uh, which, if I remember correctly, was as you deconstruct, which is in her world, okay, provided at the end of the day, you come back to the faith exactly as we expect you to. Um, <laughs> yeah, which, which doesn't make any sense. Which, and then why like, even, God why, why even question your faith? Yeah, thank God I deconstructed, <laughs> come back right back where I was, uh, yeah. which is um, just asinine. Well, I, I want to I want to step kind of back even a little bit farther and and come up and talk about just the title of your book, which is also the title of your podcast, which is Unenlightenment. I I would like to ask a question exactly, you know, what does that mean to you? What does Unenlightenment mean to you? Um, and where so did you come up with the name? So it's sort of uh, this double entendre. So in the first sense, you're unenlightening yourself, meaning you're deconstructing your presuppositions. In our case, they would be of the Enlightenment. And what spurred the Enlightenment or what came out of the Enlightenment was modernism. And that's where a lot of the church has gotten hung up on. And so if we unenlighten ourselves, we're moving back and deconstructing that history, the, the, the ideas that came with that and reconstarting at a place of doubt, like Descartes had urged us to do, because it's the only thing that really en- entitle us to know who we are as humans. And so we start there with the doubt and then we take an honest uh, reassessment or we would say reconstruction of, of different beliefs and things that have been uh, influenced by the Enlightenment. So then the other part of that is to unenlighten someone who is unenlightened is not too bright or too smart, right? So the, the sort of the irony of the whole thing is in deconstructing unenlightenment thinking you're actually becoming more enlightened. So that's sort of the idea behind it. Tell me if this, been, if this has been your experience too. I noticed that the more quote-unquote progressive my faith got, if I was being objective, I was actually moving backwards in a lot of ways. Like I was moving back towards ancient faith. I was moving back. Like we'd gone so full circle, so far afield from apostolic Christian, you know, Christianity or Orthodox Christianity, whatever you want to call it, that I'm saying things that have been said for 2000 years and I'm being nailed as a heretic and a progressive. And I'm like, yeah, but I think guys like Gregory of Nyssa would, would disagree with you, you know, and they'd go, who? And I'm like, yeah, exactly. That's the problem. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like evangelicals are taught that their faith is Orthodox. Right. And it's not. No. The majority of what they believe as a result of the Reformation, and in some cases is actually heretical and would be considered heretical by the early church. And, you know, so what, one of the things, and I'm not saying that you have to be Orthodox. And no. I mean, not being Orthodox is what call, it was what makes you a heretic, but that's somewhat subjective. So, you know, it, it's using the, going back to where, uh, people had real experiences of Jesus when people had a different view and a different experience of what it meant to be a follower of Christ. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard said that the minute that Christianity became legal, it ceased to exist. And there's some truth to that. For sure. And so it's not, and I, and I think that as sort of a tangential side note, that a lot of the so-called persecution that we see out in, in culture today 
is <laughs> is made that way because it gives them some sort of purpose and makes their faith more meaningful in some way. And that's going back again to there's something about the persecution and something about that that makes your faith more real. And so, you know, it's just sort of going back, like you said, and looking at a lot of those things and those ideas and reevaluating those as well. But to say that progress people who think more progressively are not orthodox is sort of missing what it means to be, even be a progressive Christian. It's missing the point, really. Yeah. Well, I find it interesting because I, you know, at one point I was in a church that would throw up quotes by, say, someone like Gregory of Nyssa to, to support something that they were, they, they were preaching on that day. But no one, I, I'm pretty sure, and I, you know, I'm not going to speak for everyone in the congregation, but I'd say 90% of the people in there didn't know who Gregory of Nyssa was and also didn't know that Gregory of Nyssa was a universalist. And the pastor wasn't using that as a, as a stepping stone towards, hey, we have different early church fathers, desert, desert fathers who actually preached on, spoke on universalism as, as the, the ultimate version of Christianity that they, they saw was true. They used it because it fit within the, the service that they were preaching that day. Yeah. Which is, goes again to like cherry picking versus cherry picking anything. And so it goes again to this idea that most of the people within the Christian faith are completely ignorant of the early church fathers, the desert fathers, and have no connection to what we now call the Orthodox Church, as opposed to uh, what they feel is the Orthodox Church, which is the Protestant Reformation, right? Right, exactly. And I think, uh, and so that's sort of uh, the one side. And I would say on the other side, um, I think it's important that, that especially within evangelical communities, um, especially if they're going to call themselves historical. I mean, a big impacting thing for me was understanding the transmission of the Bible and how we got what we have today. And I think people would just be, I don't think people would even believe it if they actually understood and knew the history of transmission. And I think their view of the Bible would change as a result of that even. So, I mean, there's just a lot of this historical stuff that they're just ignorant of. Yeah, I mean, and I th- I would bet you, I mean, it was drilled into me as a, you know, as a kid and as a young evangelical that, that we had original manuscripts to work from. That was like the first domino to fall. No, no, we don't. <laughs> no, we don't. I mean, some of the, some of the transcripts, some of the manuscripts we're working from are fragments of fragments that are still centuries removed from the events they're supposed to be describing. Um, and then you get, gosh, if you dig into the councils and the way that, you know, how we ended up with the canon of scripture that we ended up with is such a convoluted, weird, doesn't mean that the product they that they that they inevitably or ultimately gave us is no good, but to elevate it to the to the to the point of divinization is is just lunacy in my in my opinion. I, I just don't understand how you can get there from 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 how it was transmitted. Like you said, uh, I can't remember who it was. Uh, somebody probably Keith Giles because he likes to he likes to poke the bear, but quoted put a put a meme up and. Keith likes to put memes up, but it had to do with scribe, some errors in the Bible, you know. And essentially what it was, was, you know, I, he just got hammered from that point on by people who were like, oh, we're talking about scribal errors. We're talking about, you know, little minuscule, you know, errors of notation and translation. And it's like, yeah, but they're not that small, actually. Some of their, some of those, yeah, some of them might be not much, but there are a lot of those that are, that are pretty meaningful. Well, scribal commentary got, has come into, it's become part of scripture. Yeah. Well, and, and sadly, you find out as, as you reach, as you read more about the history of what became the Bible that we have now, and to come to find out that there were like side schemes, right? Uh, if you leave this verse out or this, bo- this book out, you can have this book. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like, it's like weird, like political backroom dealings. You know, it's like Hamilton, you know, want to be in the room where it happened, where right, they right. made this. Listen, you can have Revelation. But you're right. going to have to kick, you know. Right. You um, can't have the Maccabees or you can't right. have, right? It's like, and it was like on, it was on the chopping block. Revelations was on the chopping block until someone said, Hey, well, if you get removed this, if you move this book, I'll let you have Revelations. Were any of us taught that in the church? No. no yeah. I no. mean, it was very political in the sense that they only, yes, they had a criteria, but really that 
the criteria was developed out of finding books that would already jive with the theology that had already been developed. So if it was anything that went against the theology that had already been developed, it was thrown out. So their theology then in their mind was, was the theology. Right. And one, if you, and even if you talk about honestly, like I know some of the criteria was, you know, Hey, we have to have with some reasonable amount of certainty, we have to know who the author of this was. But if you were to bring 21st century scholarship to bear on all the things that they ascribe to Paul, well, most, most scholars, you know, will not attribute quite a bit of what we call Pauline to Paul. I mean, so, I think they so, just defaulted to Paul. That's what I think. I think they did. Like, well, <laughs> it's, a, it's an epistle. It sounds kind of Pauly. Paul. You know, I was, I was raised thinking Hebrews was written by Paul, you know, and we now know he most, I mean, I'm, I don't think, I can't think of an actual, like, legitimate scholar who would, who would say that. Um, we had Douglas Campbell on the show not too long ago, and I think he gives, you know, the thumbs up to a handful, you know, he'll go, okay, fine, you know, Romans, yes, probably, Corinthians, yes, but, you know, he's, he's at, I forget, you know, I grew up, I grew up parroting the party line that, you know, two, you know, you know, two thirds of the New Testament was written by Paul. Yeah, not so much. I won't go so far as to say that they're, you know, that they're not Pauline. You know, I, I do believe that he probably had disciples and people who followed him, but they might have been a century later, you know, writing some of this stuff. But, and again, when you have, when you, when you approach the Bible as an all or nothing proposition, which a lot of folks have done. So that's, that's the pushback I get is, well, if, if it's not this, then it, then it's nothing. No, I, I, I mean, man, when you approach the Bible like that, then yeah, it is nothing because you, you'll never convince me it's inerrant or perfect. So if, if, if my choice is inerrant or worthless, well, then I guess I have to go with one. But there's a middle ground there somewhere, I believe, that, that says, man, it's so valuable, right? Well, that's, that goes back to enlightenment thinking. That's, that binary, that binary perspective is a result of modernism. Okay. Uh, yep. So, so, I, so something to pull back the veil on and unenlighten ourselves over um, <laughs> is binary thinking. Yeah, it's actually really funny because yep. I was doing a little tiny bit of reading on Derrida um, because you oh. know he's the father of actual deconstruction, and I uh, figured I should familiarize myself a little bit. And that was his. That's one of the major tenets of deconstruction, a la Derrida, is it, we live in such a binary world that as we ascribe meaning to words we inadvertently create hierarchies within them because of the binaries we assume. So dark and light, you know, is subordinate, you know, dark is subordinate to light or good to bad or male to female. So his whole idea of deconstruction was to, was to try and identify those hierarchies and those and, and subvert them and try to divorce meaning, you know, try to, try to, try to divorce meaning from that, from, from some sort of objective truth. But anyway, that, that, that's an interesting thing. I think that's something that's worth exploring this whole idea of binaries and that, that being a product of the enlightenment. Another question I'd have for you is, uh, you definitely, it seems like you, you separate the idea of progressive Christian from liberal Christian. And, um, I'd like to, I'd like to get your take on what's the difference because a lot of people kind of put those two together. As soon as you hear the word progressive, it's automatically a liberal agenda, right? So, but you, you have a, you have a different take on that and you think that Liberal and progressive aren't necessarily the same. Uh, I would say that I think even in your writing, some of the same is that they both kind of contradict conservative theology or conservative Christian Christianity, but they're in, they're not the same, right? Right. So when we hear progressive, I, I think that the first thing we think of is progressive liberalism, which is a political ideology. And so I think that knowing that and that that's been around forever, we sort of just assume that then progressive um, Christianity is just a left-leaning uh, version of Christianity. We already have a liberal Christianity. So progressive Christianity isn't the same thing as liberal Christianity. In fact, it's not even a, uh, a section of a, a spectrum like that. I define uh, progressive Christianity as being a milieu, a place um, where a group of people are getting together and you know, this could be virtual or whatever. There's this, they have this thing in common. And that thing that they have in common is that they're reevaluating things, that they're deconstructing and reconstructing. And they need a place that's safe. They need a place where there, there are other people that they can talk with and learn from and just like a community. 
And then eventually, I think anyways, they should leave progressive Christianity and be reintegrated in some way back into a community, another community, whether that be evangelical or main, mainline or whatever. So I don't think that progressive Christianity is this sort of like denomination that people exist. Maybe some view it that way, but I, I really don't think if you sort of analyze it from the larger perspective of what's going on, and I, and I see progressive Christianity coming out of emergent Christianity before it. Absolutely, and yeah. So, yeah, and emergent Christianity wasn't, you know, they have a lot of people who were liberal, but that doesn't make it a liberal ideology or anything. Yeah. Um, I consider myself more conservative. Now, conservatives would consider me comp- completely li- uh, liberal, but liberals would consider me much more conservative on some, you know, spectrum or whatever. At, at least one or two things you've said on this podcast so far would find you labeled conservative by many of my liberal friends. The fact that you find any kind of authority in scripture would put you on the conservative side for them. So, and I, that, uh, but, but I like what you said. I, we brought this up with Brian McLaren when we had him on the podcast. Cause, cause I, for me, it was interesting to see the emergent church become, I guess, the enemy du jour for a while, right? Like everybody was, you know, like that was the new thing. You know, guys like Brian McLaren, Rob Bell and Phyllis Dickel and all these people had come out and they were in this new sort of, ill-defined emergent church. It was just, I don't even think it was a label they ever ascribed to themselves. Maybe they did, but but then it just kind of, I think for, for a lot of people, it seemed like it quietly disappeared, but I don't think it did. I think it morphed. I think it continued on. Um, and, matter and fact, I think it grew. I, I think it did, yeah. And I, I actually think it, it, it evolved into what is happening right now. I think this is a natural extension of what the emergent church was was all about, which was at the forefront was always about asking questions and not being contented with the status quo and questioning even things like, oh my gosh, church and the Bible. And, you know, so I, I, we owe a great debt of gratitude to people like Brian McLaren, to, to women like Phyllis Tickle, who were, who were willing to put their necks out and ask some of these really hard questions. Um, matter of fact, I just happened to notice that uh, Brian wrote a nice endorsement for your books. That's awesome, man. <laughs> so you've had, a, I, I, his name came up. I was literally looking at that as you brought up the, uh, the, the emergent church. I was like, oh, that's a good segue. So, um, Brian's a, he's a, he's a man. He's one of my, uh, one of my favorite people. He's really awesome. But is that, is he somebody that you know? Have you gotten a chance to talk to on your podcast or, or, or? Yeah, I, I've, I know him a little bit. Uh, we have done podcasts and I did an event with him in New York, uh, one time and we've talked a few times. So, you know, it's like he, I know his perspective is that emerging, the emerging church was a failure. I think he thinks that. And I try to reassure him that without his giving us permission to doubt, at least me back in the early 2000s, I wouldn't be where I'm at. So yeah, um, I don't, wouldn't, can never consider that a failure. No, I think I told him the same thing. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, like with that, yours were the shoulders we were, we're standing on right now. Yep. And, and they, and they took a lot of, they, I know guys like, I know Brian in particular, but obviously guys like Rob and other people have landed on their feet, but in the short term, they took a lot of hits, man. I mean, when you're, you know, when you're pretty much hated by the entire evangelical church. And Brian in particular has such a humility to him. He, that yeah, just, he does. It, like, I would be so angry if I was him. Like, I would just have this persona of being angry all the time for, for all the crap that I have to deal with. Yeah. So he's like just a great example. He really is. And, and another guy that we had on not too long ago was uh, John Dominic Crossan. And uh, he was one that kickstarted. So, so if Brian started me down, like the emergent, like, all right, it's okay to question. It's okay to doubt, um, past. And John, Dom was the guy that was like, yeah, but let's take this stuff seriously. Like, let's actually bring some scholarship to bear. Let's not just accept the traditions that have been handed down. Let's actually look at this like an academic. And, uh, man, I tell you what, the, for, so for the, the Jesus seminar and guys like that doing actual Jesus, you know, um, Jesus history, man, it was, it was, that was a whole new thing too for me. So I, I really kind of got the, like the, like the double whammy of let's look at this academically. Let's be open to the questions and the doubts. Let's actually lean into them. And then along comes like a guy like Richard Rohr, <laughs> who just kind of like throws the final nail in the coffin and says, Oh, and by the way, let, let's get back to some, some, some sort of mystical stuff as well. You know, let's, let's, you know, or Thomas Merton, who, you know, kind of reintroduces contemplative faith to the whole thing. And you go, man, there's, there's so much more interesting stuff going on inside of Christendom 
than the normal diet they try to feed us, right? It's yeah. really cool stuff. But yeah, Marcus yeah. Borg was that for me. Oh, yeah. Gosh, I forgot Marcus. Yeah. Interesting thing for me is, uh, so I came at this in a completely different way than a lot of people who stayed within the faith. So I left, I left church. I left the faith back in like 88, 89. So I went on this own, my own journey, right? And so I, I studied the mystics, but from a different side. I studied the mystics within Buddhism, Taoism, and, um, and then I just started noticing some connections and some comparisons to my old Christian faith. Um, and then, so as I make this, like, you know, if you, if, if you were to draw a line of these two paths where they kind of, at some point, kind of merge back together, I came at it from this point of view where I brought in all these ideas outside the Christian faith back into my Christian faith. So I, I tried to com- combine Buddhism, Taoism into this new idea of what my faith was. And so that's where it was so easy for me to connect with the mystics of the Christian faith, the early church fathers, the desert fathers, fathers, the desert mothers. So it's an interesting parallel, but at the same time, it, it's weird how it brought me to a very similar place where like, I think I would have got there too if I was connected to someone like Brian McLaren, and if I was connected to someone like Dom. Uh, someone who was saying, hey, it's okay to question your faith. It's okay to question the Bible. It's okay to question all of this and look at it at a more mystical um, idea and and literally question your faith, literally question the Bible. But I came at it at a completely different path. And it's weird how it like then connects with what we're talking about now, right? And you know what's funny about, I mean, it, you know what's interesting about that is that Truth is truth, and that's why it happened. Right. Yeah, unless unless you dare to, you know, convey that truth inside of certain circles, and then they go, well, wait a true. minute, you know, um, you can't quote that guy, because right. that guy's burning in hell. And I go, well, oh, well, shit, I'm sorry. I, 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 I was unaware of this. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know that you knew um, that you'd been there and seen it. Um, it's a little silly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's strange, because I remember getting in trouble multiple times, because I would yeah, Facebook has been the bane of my existence, man. Um, that's where I've gotten in the most trouble. I don't do Pathios because I'm not eloquent enough to write long pieces, or maybe I'm just not disciplined enough. But, but I, you know, I'll put a little quip up on Facebook, and man, I tell you what, the people they love to they love to react, you know. And God help you if you if you express some doubt or you or you or you begin to speak of things in in less than absolute terms. And that's actually been a honestly, it's been a great gift to me. I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't. I. I don't think I would even have a faith at this point if if it was if it was required to just parrot a, like a like a, a list of doctrines and beliefs. I just don't think I could do it. The freedom to actually ask those questions has preserved that for me. And guys like Marcus Borg, I'm, who I, I failed to mention earlier, who had the audacity to say you could read the Bible differently, like you didn't have to come at it like like it's some sort of static flat piece of, of, of writing. Man, that's a that's a that's a gift, right? Yeah, and you know what? Like that type of faith is what changes other people too. Yeah, but they yeah, see that that's so. a, something that's real. It, yeah, both the good and the bad that you're experiencing. Yeah, and, and it and, and it makes you human, right? Because that's the one right. thing that you know. If you talk to man, I talk to a lot of atheists, and they just and, and you know, and I, and I find myself in total agreement now. Um, I am I am way more triggered anymore by any sort of absolute certainty that bothers me. And it almost doesn't matter what you're talking about, but if you if you come off as just so damn certain, I'm like, ah, I just, I don't know, man. And within like the world of Facebook, I think you really get a quick idea of what your, you know, in air quotes, friends on Facebook, what they really believe by just the little things you post, right? So the biggest pushback I ever got on Facebook was having the audacity to say that women could preach in church. How dare you, heretic. And I think it's funny that, you know, there's, it, it shows the level or the, the, where your friends are on Facebook when it comes to these quote unquote progressive ideas, right? Uh, so for the first, the first part for me was that was I posted something. It was actually about Beth Moore, right? It was the whole, uh, go home thing, right? I'm not a fan of Beth Moore. I think a lot of her theology is really, really messed up. But for them to tell her to go home was just stupid. 
And so I happened to make a comment in defense of her and I got into huge, huge arguments over saying that Beth Moore can preach. There's nothing in the Bible that says she can't. And Matter of fact, course, she you know, is preaching. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So not only can she's doing it right now. Yeah. But it's interesting the, the group of people that you have surrounded you on something that surrounds you on something like Facebook, uh, it's quick to find out what their thoughts are and what their beliefs are when you post anything. Yeah. That contradicts their ideas. And for me, it was that. It helps me weed out my friends list. That's good. <laughs> yeah. The, the, yeah. You know, I just say something crazy and be like, Oh, there goes another one. We're good now. Um, so, so let's, let's talk a little bit more about the book. So as we progress from, say, how we look at the Bible, I, I noticed you, you talked about hermeneutics in there, which is great, apologetics, but then you, at, at one point you begin to talk about the church as well. So what kind of unenlightenment did you, did you, did you happen to experience when it came to just church? The first part of it is that it's programmatic. And so it's, yeah. it's unauthentic uh, as a result of that. And, um, and so, but how else are you going to do it? I mean, the emerging church, when they came along, they were really big into like small, uh, groups type, um, ways of doing church and stuff. But I'm not positive that you could even survive in that. So I, I'm not sure, like, I don't have a good alternative to it is what I'm saying. So I, I hate to just criticize and then just walk away. But um, I do know that what we have in place isn't working. And I think that the primary problem is in the area of discipleship, which is a bit of a cliche word. But, you know, in evangelical circles, it's discipleship and even apologetics and stuff like that are very informational based. So like you, somehow you're supposed to grow spiritually just by gaining more knowledge. I don't understand how that works, but that's the way that it's been done instead of it being a way of imitating Christ. And so that's what discipleship should be. That's what the, the, the disciples did. They were imitators of Jesus when, the, when he left. Yeah, I make that, actually, I, I make that observation in, in the book that I, that I wrote that will be coming out on choir soon. But um, is that Paul didn't convert people. Paul invited people to imitate him as he imitated Christ. Now, what that means, I don't know. I mean, I, I actually posit that he means like, as often as I do, and when I am imitating Christ, Imitate me then, not necessarily, you know, that everything I do is Christ-like. So, you know, you can take that little word as and go, follow me as, follow me when I do. When you see me doing things that look Christ-like, do those things. But yeah, it's so much more than even like a catechism, right? Which, which, which is pretty much, you know, even, but even early Christian catechism was so much more, had so much more depth to it than what, what we might say now. Sometimes people were in catechism for a year before they ever converted. I mean, they were invited to come inside. Let's see what you're signing on for, man. Spend some time with us and see if this is something that you can you realistically commit your life to. And then, you know, our 20th, 21st century mindset is, let's get you into a room. Let's, let's gin up your emotions. Let's get you to a point of decision. Let's have you say a prayer, invite Jesus into your heart. And woo, man, our job is done. The number goes up on the board and... And any notion of discipleship that comes after that is pretty, pretty ill-defined in my well, experience. I mean, honestly, wouldn't it be more realistic and more authentic if they just treated it like a Jerry Lewis telethon, right? I mean, where we just have a number, we just keep a number ticking. We just, we just, because honestly, they, they don't connect with anybody after they're converted at all. And for any church that thinks they do, good on you. I, great. I'm, ha- I'm happy you think you do. You don't. The idea is, again, like Nat was saying, to get a checkbox into more conversions when all a disciple is, is someone who is a follower of Jesus or a follower of someone. You can be a disciple of other people, first of all, but the disciple, to be a disciple of Jesus is to follow the teachings of Jesus. Yeah, but the problem is, John, that, that most Christians don't even want to do that. Well, yeah. And that, right? that's, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's the sad that, part. That becomes problematic, right? I mean, I've actually had knockdown, drag out arguments with folks. I'll say something and I won't attribute it to Jesus. And they're like, liberal. I'm like, no, Christ-like. <laughs> I'm, yeah. sorry. I'm sorry that you don't <laughs> like Jesus's teachings on nonviolence, but there they are just the same. I mean, you have to do something with those. You can't just reject them out of hand. And the same with everything else that Jesus said that is problematic. We have to deal with those things, you know? I love uh, Brad Jersak's approach is, listen, I don't, 
I don't necessarily know what to do with all this stuff, but I can't just dismiss it. I can't just disregard it. So some of these things I'll set aside and I'll continue to wrestle with. But so much of, uh, so much of what, you know, modern evangelical Christianity is about is about being biblical. They don't really give a damn about being Christ-like. So when we look at how we, how we might could do church differently, I'm with you. I'm, I'm still, I'm still a little bit at a loss. I, I, I think there's a need for connection. I think there's a need for community. But something you said a few seconds ago was really resonated, which is so much of what we have called community is inauthentic. I mean, it's not real community in so many ways, right? It's it's predicated on the fact that we all agree on something. What what what's your thought on that? Yeah. So we, uh, I know at uh, the church that I'm at, we're far from perfect. But one thing that we're very intentional about is, uh, well, a couple things. One is making sure that we have a wide variety of people that uh, attend the church. So we have from strong liberals to strong conservatives, the whole spectrum is there. And that creates quite a challenge. Um, if you're, you're a pastor, you know that uh, we, it's hard enough to have people who just diverge a little bit and they're thinking to, you know, get them to play nicely together, now get people who are really far apart on areas and get them to play nice together. And that's even more of a challenge. But if you all come in with the, with the same idea that you're there at different stages in your life, in your faith, you're there to learn, you're there to imitate Christ, to um, uh, serve the public, you're there to do all these... If you're all there under that common goal and mission and, and stuff like that, that makes that task a lot easier. And so, you know, we have problems with people leaving because they didn't like something the pastor said, just like everybody else does. But um, we are really intentional, even if, even if it doesn't work, it's sort of like a church experiment. Even if it doesn't work in the end, um, we, we think at least this is the best way that to do church at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm I'm falling kind of along the lines of like there's there's no model to follow really right I mean the the best we have even even if you want to go the biblical route gosh there's probably not a church hardly in America that's biblical in that sense so from you know from from the book of Acts we get some very nondescript you know descriptions of churches that met house to house so I think the house church model might be the closest thing to being quote unquote biblical. Certainly not the massive institutional things that we've, we've erected with, you know, all kinds of hierarchies. And uh, that, that part, uh, that's, you know, as much as I love my Orthodox friends, I could never, you know, and it's simply because there's still massive amounts of hierarchy. There's still, you know, people who are over other people and somebody has authority and somebody's subordinate. And yeah, I just don't, I just don't, I don't see it in scripture really being, being justified. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm open, you know, I've, I've, I've decided that, you know, church can take place wherever, you know, I've had pretty, I've had some pretty churchy experiences in bars. One, one of the things I say in my book is that we're the church and we bring church with us wherever we go. I think the biggest thing the church does wrong, and, and I've been involved in churches that tried to do this and I thought it was wrong, was allowing the congregation to speak up. Like they don't allow the congregation to speak up? They do. They they did, and I thought that was that was uh, inappropriate. I thought that, and again, this is going back to my idea where church was like like speak up in what way, like criticize just, the church, criticize criticize the church, ask questions. Which is funny because my biggest complaint why I left the church is they didn't allow me to ask questions. But when I went back into church and I tried to become a good associate pastor, one of the things I got offended by mostly was people speaking up and asking questions. It's like, this is not the appropriate time for that. But <laughs> it is absolutely the appropriate time for that. And I think if a church is going to be healthy in any way possible, it has to break down the hierarchy. It has to allow the congregation to ask questions. Because if we can't, ask questions, we can't move forward. We can't move forward. We can't be better human beings. And if we can't be better human beings, we cannot be Christ-like. Yeah, I agree. And that that is where churches get it wrong. They have this idea that the person standing behind the podium, the pulpit, whatever you want to call it, is the only one who has the answers and everyone else has to defer to that. As soon as we become that, we become a problem. Yeah, but you fix that by being really bad at it. 
So then that's how I, that's how I fixed this. Nobody, nobody would assume in my church that I have any authority. I have, um, I'm too self-deprecating to take myself that seriously, but, but yeah, it's, it's, that, that is a quandary. That's one when you, when you get further down this deconstruction path and you wonder, is there something worth reconstructing? I don't have a good answer for that yet. I think there's value there. Certainly, I don't, I don't think that we are healthy human beings if we're completely disconnected from one another. I don't think that's, that's not a good way. Yeah. I, th- I think at, at its base, church asks for community and community is a healthy environment. Yeah. As where, long as that community is healthy and correct. not, and not a place where you feel like you're, like you're expected to behave or perform a certain way or inducing uh, like, trauma. Or yeah. just, oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, most of us probably need therapy from the times we spent in church. Shit, I'm in therapy. Yeah, <laughs> if you're not in therapy, you probably we probably should be in therapy. Well, unenlightenment is my therapeutic uh, <laughs> journal, if you will. That's great. I mean, because that that's another issue that 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 we could probably talk at some length over. But uh, at some point, we'll talk about church trauma and like a very specific kind of. Because I think I think church trauma is a very specific kind of trauma. But I think it's one that goes, I don't, I don't know. I guess it just does, it doesn't get as much attention maybe because there's a lot of shame attached to it. Well, how do I feel bad about what happened to my church? You know? Well, you have like, you know, like Christian Dumay talks about, right? Uh, Jesus and John Wayne. So you have this idea that any of us who are, if we take church seriously, we are probably macho, macho men. And the last thing we need is therapy because we're tough. So the word therapy, instantly says that you're not tough. And so you can't, it, that can't be what it is because God forbid that a man in this Christian world needs therapy because that, that right there says he's not, doesn't have it all together. He's not as tough as he thinks he is. And we don't need that in the pulpit. That idea of tough is, is, uh, uh, how do I say this? Is bullshit? <laughs> yeah, not real. <laughs> it's fake. Yeah, well, it is. it's not real. It's uh, but I, I I'm reminded of a of a my my my, my associate pastor, a guy named Todd. His daughter was going to a a young adult college age Bible study thing, and uh, the leader of that of that group was a was a guy that I know, and she was going through some pretty severe depression. She was, had some issues, you know, and uh, so she went to this guy who was a pastor. And confided in him that she was having some issues with, with mental health. And he pretty much just told her to pray more. And so, and she had enough, she had enough presence of mind to go, well, that's stupid. And she left and she never went back. Um, but, but there's a lot of other folks who would, who, who, who maybe didn't, would not have that presence of mind. They would say, oh, okay, then now it's my fault that I'm feeling this way. And so now on top of the depression, on top of the anxiety, and now I get to, I get to pile some shame on that too. And, and a little bit of self blame. So the church has done, that's, that's one thing that I think John and I talked about way early on, maybe like our second or third guest we ever had on was Michelle Collins. And she had written a book, um, dealing with mental health pretty much. And John and I both agree. We're like, man, the church needs to get out of the damn mental health game. Like at least be honest with the fact that they, unless you are a clinical psychologist, man, um, maybe stop with dispensing glib cliches and platitudes as advice. Well, and then that, what that does is, is specifically in a hierarchy, uh, establishment where men are dominant over women, then our, our answer to our wives or our girlfriends or our daughters to tell them to just quote unquote get over it. Yikes, um, yeah. Is like, we consider that biblical because we are the, you know, it goes God, husband, wife. Which is, you know, for have you all seen of, that really, have you really seen that terrible meme of the, of the, of the umbrella and the, and the smaller yeah. umbrella? And the, have you seen that before? There's yes. a meme that's, it's like, it's like, it's, it's like a, a, like a family and there's an umbrella that says, you know, uh, what is it like husband? And then over that one is God and over that one, uh, this, but, but it, but it's basically this hierarchy of, right. you know, of who's supposed to be that, you know, in charge. And I, and somebody posted that on, and I, and I pretty sarcastically were like, so wait a minute, the big umbrella that goes over everybody needs smaller umbrellas underneath it to catch the rain yeah. at the big, it's just silly. But, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but that's how, you know, I, I bet you were too. We were raised with that, um, sensibility that there was that structure inside the family too. In fact, you know, when I was a young married man, um, I was 19, my wife and I were both pretty fundamentalist. We fell into that, 
groove pretty quickly. You know, I was the guy, therefore I was the decider. Therefore, her job was the spiritual to leader. I was a spiritual right. leader. I, and I, and it created a great deal of tension because I didn't want to be. I didn't feel like, like, you know what I mean? I, I didn't take any of that stuff all that seriously. And my wife was, was, was very often at odds with me because I wasn't not taking a strong enough leadership role in the family. And I'm like, you're a grown up, like make your own fucking decisions. Like, <laughs> but, but you're, you're, you're the husband. And, you know, 30 years later, we're still married, largely because we, we both got over it, you know, and we moved on to more healthy relationships. Well, and the, and the scary part about that is, like I said, I, I left the church when I was 18. I got married when I was 21 and I'm supposedly no longer connected to this, right? But this still dominated my wife and my relationship. I still expected her to be subservient to me, even though I was supposedly... Yeah, but I know your wife. How how well did that actually go? Not well at all. <laughs> <laughs> I would well, love then, to have been know, a fly on the wall for those conversations. Your wife would be like, that's some bullshit, son. Well, and then <laughs> I had, you know, my, our, my first child is, is our daughter, who I raised to be like, very proud to be a, uh, a woman in this world. And then at the same time, expected her to be somehow subservient to me. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like a walking contradiction 24 seven because the church indoctrinated me so much that even though I left the church, it still had its hooks in me in the way I raised my, my children. You and left the, the church, I but your church trauma didn't leave you, man. No, no. And that's, you know, Therapy. It's like Vegas, man. You think it stays there, but it doesn't stay there. Yeah. If I had one word for anybody who was in this therapy, therapy, yeah. therapy, or unenlightenment, or unenlightenment, or yes. or start to you know start to peel away some of those layers. I'm not being glib when I say that. I, I really mean that. The best thing I ever did was was start to peel back the veil and go, all right, let's actually okay, let, let's ask the hard questions now, and and be willing to come up with answers that weren't expected. You know what I mean? Like, okay, I'm going to ask these questions and, and, I, and I really do want to know at the end of the day, which of this, you know, what, what parts of this are true, which parts are junk, which parts I'm still wrestling with. Um, I think it's a brilliant title, man. I love the, I love the concept of the book. I love that approach to deconstruction, that stripping away of, of some of our certitudes. Um, man, I, I just think it's great. I, I, I am, uh, I would highly encourage everybody right now to go stop what you're doing, get on your local booksellers. Um, sadly, you probably have to go to Amazon, but Jeff Bezos will be <laughs> nice and, and reward you. But, um, if you can buy it locally, man, buy it locally. If you have a local bookstore and they are someone who's set up to order books, uh, have, go there, have them order the book for you. If you so live I in a literary have... wasteland like I do, <laughs> then I guess your only option is Barnes and Noble or, you know, I, I, um, I luckily live in an area where we have two pretty decent boutique bookstores who will both order books for you. And yeah, it might cost a couple dollars more than Amazon, but you're helping a local business. So go to your local bookstores. They will order books for you. If you have the audacity to go up to a clerk and actually <laughs> the ask The unmitigated them. gall. Yes. Yeah. You will have to yeah. interact with other human beings. Yeah. Oh, well. And then, then, never, and then yeah. God forbid, you might actually find <laughs> someone who has like serious, like, like connections with you who like understands books and might be able to suggest more books for you. Oh, geez. We're living in a world, a really weird world now. Everything you're talking about is just crazy, John. It's all crazy. <laughs> um, so yeah, unenlightenment is the book. And man, I'm, I tell you what, I'm just, I'm, I'm just super excited for it. I, I, I feel like it's a, like it's a needed book. Every, every book that comes out and, be, and continues this discussion, I think is adding another layer of, of, of legitimacy to the whole thing. Um, it's just everyone... another level of uh, showing us the choir absolutely understands the importance of asking questions, yeah. uh, being okay with people who don't understand their faith and want to have questions that have questions and they want them answered. They want to ask them. So choir, you know, I know we talk up choir a lot. Of course but it's we do. A really, of course I'm, we do. Kiss and ask my publisher. Y'all are the best. <laughs> well, hey, when I was going through the pub searching for a publisher, I got a lot of feedback from other people who are like, I love this book, but there's no way we can publish it. Really? 
Yeah. So it's just, yeah, I mean, I'm in the same camp with you guys. I have a huge appreciation for choir and just with the willingness to publish uh, things that are out of the box. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I luckily, we already connected with choir way before I started writing. And so I kind of began the writing process with them in mind. So that was helpful. But I don't see anybody, I don't see any other publishing houses chomping at the bit to put out books like, like ours. You know, and 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 uh, that's that they're filling a niche, and I I, I think a very needed void. So, when we're done, we'll make sure and connect. Make sure and connect with Eric on Pathios. Um, I'm assuming you've got Facebook and TikTok and Instagram, and uh, you're on Tinder probably. Um. <laughs> you can. Uh, there's a central area you can connect with me at unenlightenmentthebook.com. There you go. Unenlightenmentthebook.com. We'll make sure all those links are in the show notes so y'all can check it out. Um, blow up his stuff, man. Read it all and share it with your friends. Make sure we, uh, we get all these choir books in the number one spots on Amazon. So that'd be great. Absolutely. All right. Well, Eric, I appreciate you, man. Thank you for taking the time. It's been awesome. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.